Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. So thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And like I told you before, we're we're um, looking to do more of our podcast through video and audio. So you have the option to watch or to listen. And today we have a very special guest, the Reverend C.J. Rhodes. Welcome, um, Reverend Rhodes. Lisa, thank you so much for having me on today. I'm excited about it. So uh, for those who don't know who you are, would you give them a little bit of background? Sure. Well, I'm a native of Mississippi, grew up in a town called Hazelhurst, and I went off to Ole Miss and Duke Divinity School for my uh, education, moved back to Jackson in 2009 and became the pastor of Mount Helm Baptist Church in 2010. That's the oldest African-American church in Jackson, Mississippi, the second oldest in the state. For those who are members of the Church of Christ Holiness or the Church of God in Christ, uh, they may be aware of the history of their movements coming out of Mount Helm back in the 1890s. I also serve as a professor and director of religious life at Alcorn State University, uh, the oldest HBCU in Mississippi. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. We're actually working on an HBCU tour for spring of 2017. Oh, wow. Um, so uh, come to Alcorn. <laughs> so we'll have to talk after after this is over about that. Um, so um, one of the reasons I thought it would be great to have you is that I saw a status on your Facebook page about um, your testimony um, that you were agnostic um, for um, for those who don't aren't aware, our listeners, what is an agnostic? Sure. So for me, at least agnostic. Um, somebody. I'm sorry about that. Um, an, an agnostic is somebody who basically doesn't know the, the, the agnostic literally comes from the Greek meaning uh, not to know. And so. Uh, whereas an atheist would say there is no God, there are no gods, there's no divinity, no spirituality, nothing of the sort. The agnostic simply says, well, we don't know about that. We don't know if there's a God, if there isn't a God. But generally, agnostics tend to live in ways like atheists, meaning that, you know, an agnostic isn't praying every day, an agnostic isn't going about religious traditions necessarily, or if he or she is, uh, he or she is going through the motions without really believing there's any power in them. And so uh, that was a bit of my life story from around 11 years of age till about 17, where uh, I was questioning everything. And I was that, that guy that always uh, made Christians squirm because I asked mm -hmm. all the tough questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what, what kind of led you on that journey? Did you go to church any of your childhood life? Sure. My, my parents were irregular in their church attendance. Uh, they grew up uh, Baptist. Um, but over the years, they had kind of become somewhat estranged from the church. Um, so there was that background. We did go to church. We were told to read the Bible. And they were religious people in the sense, for instance, when I was less than a year old, my mother 
uh, dedicated me back to God. I was uh, in the kitchen. She was frying some catfish. And somehow I got away from her, went down the hallway and uh, had pulled down one of those super big King James Bibles. And she thought it was so interesting. She lifted me up to God and, and prayed uh, that God would, would use my life in a certain way. Uh, but for the most part, we didn't go to church every Sunday. And, and so, so um, that was one of the things we just didn't have. A, I didn't have like a strong church life, but my parents divorced when I was six. And so I had a lot of uh, intellectual and emotional questions about that. Um, the few times we did go to church, I saw uh, that as Dr. Jerry Young says, the audio and the video didn't match. So people said one thing in church, but didn't live it after the church uh, service ended. And then as I began to read more voraciously a variety of books like Egyptian mythology, Greek mythology, uh, humanities, et cetera, I had bigger questions about, all right, if there's a God, is that God only found in Christianity? Uh, if there's a God, then why these things happen here or there? And ultimately, one of the questions I asked is what separates Christianity from any of these so-called myths? You know, what makes Jesus any different from Zeus? And a lot of times people couldn't answer those questions. And so uh, essentially, I kind of broke up with God, if, if you will, around 12 and just said, you know, uh, if there's a God, God will reveal God's self to me at some point. But until that point, I'm going to, you know, go on this journey, uh, but not hold as much um, affection for the church and for the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people, especially black millennials, resonate with that story. I'm sure you hear all the time um, on campus at Alcorn. Um, how what was your conversion like? What was that experience for you? What was the tool that God used to kind of draw you to himself? Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, I think there are generally two kinds of conversion stories. There's a Damascus road and then there's an Emmaus road. Mm -hmm. I think I had a bit of an Emmaus road experience. Uh, those late teen years, uh, I was friends with a number of, of young people in my school who were Christians, who went to church. They were of the more Pentecostal charismatic persuasion. And uh, anytime they could they could chat with me. They were, they were very relational, very humorous, but there were those moments where they said, hey, listen to this, um, this cassette here, uh, read this book. Um, in fact, they would even go so far and say, uh, CJ, you need to be saved. And I would ask, well, what is salvation? And is it anything akin to nirvana? Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, and it was like, whatever you're talking about, CJ, don't, don't, you know, understand this is very serious. And so those relationships uh, planted seeds. Uh, and then eventually God really called me to himself through some very powerful uh, experiences that I could not explain away. Um, encounters in the Pentecostal charismatic world with prophetic uh, persons who would share things with me that I knew no one knew. Um, and that awakened a hunger in me to say, God, if you would think enough of me to bring someone into my life who I'd never met, but who told me things and said that you told them to tell me these things, uh, then, then that was enough for me to begin a journey. I didn't build my faith on miracles alone or the prophetic alone, but that was the, that was, that's what God used to get my attention. And, and then from there, um, I remember one night I was uh, had left a revival, had come home and just cried out to God that night. 
for deliverance, for salvation. And interestingly, I didn't have the kind of, like I didn't have the testimony of I was out there gang banging and God saved me. I was the pretty good kid, but the one who, who was estranged from God intellectually. And in that mm-hmm. night, I, I experienced God uh, really embracing me as the prodigal son who had come home. That's awesome because you hear um, I, I grew up in a um, non-denominational Pentecostal background. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that, you know, I, a lot of my friends are Kojic. A lot of my friends are um, are charismatic. So I'm, I'm very familiar with that. That's my world. That's the black Pentecostal churches is the world yeah. I, I come from. And so when you come from that world, sometimes there's a negative connotation with the abuse for those who don't know or didn't or got saved and they were maybe in a, a Baptist church that was not full gospel or um, or reform, they there's this negative connotation that comes along with the prophetic and miraculous. Um, but those who've grown up in it know that there's a bad side and then there's a good side to it, the, the side you're, you're sharing about. Um, and anytime there's anything, people abuse it. So, um, you know, so your experience is very helpful to people who can who can say, okay, I I know Reverend Rose is a solid person and this is how God drew him to himself. Now, that's not saying that there's not abuse present in in many circumstances, but there where um, there's abuse, there's also authenticity. And I think, you know, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. So I think your, your testimony is very powerful in that respect. Well, thank you, and, and God be praised. I think what you brought up, the distinction between abuse and authenticity is so mm-hmm. important because, you know, and, and this may be a little bit of a diatribe. Uh, one of the issues I have with some of my, my reformed brothers and sisters, who I love dearly, is that in an attempt to, you know, I call it kind of the MacArthur Christian, John MacArthur Christian, who attacks the, the, the charismatic Pentecostal circles for those abuses, which you're right. There are a lot of abuses in the Pentecostal and charismatic world, um, but there were also abuses among reformed folks. Um, I'm in Mississippi, and you know Jim Crow, in many ways, was was built upon um, the traditions of Presbyterianism. So mm-hmm. if we're not going to reject Presbyterianism for you know in spite of its abuses. Then we shouldn't outright uh, uh, deny you know Kojic or whatnot. And I have a great endearment to, to, to that reality. Like I said earlier, I pastor a church where a lot of that was going on. And I'm presently writing my dissertation on, on that history and, and, and implica- uh, implications of that for today. And when you look at this, um, they're wrestling with the text. They're wrestling with experience the same way many of us are. And I think that the body of Christ has to have breath and bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, there needs to be structure, there needs to be uh, accountability, but there also needs to be a, a sense in which God can move. And I think at least for the millennials I connect with, for them, the issue is they don't see enough of that authentic expression of God's power in their lives. So they kind of live as if God is really kind of on the shelf. And so if we can bring, you know, sort of the academic intellectual pursuits of the reformed in conversation with the um experiential, spirit-filled life of Pentecostalism, we can see a more well-balanced Christian. Mm-hmm. Because it's not either or, it's the both and that people, both right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
So you shared a little bit about your dissertation. What is, uh, a, can you expound a little bit more on that? Yeah, so I'm presently uh, in the Doctor of Ministry program at Wesley Biblical Seminary here in Jackson. And what I'm looking at in the dissertation is one, um, 1890 to 1900, we see how uh, E.C. Morris, who's the first president of the National Baptist Convention, USA Incorporated, is a um, mentor, if you will, to Charles Price Jones and Charles Harrison Mason, who later um, come to Mount Helm for the holiness uh, um, meetings. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at what's going on, first of all, in this larger racial backdrop. 1890s uh, were a very difficult time for African-Americans. Reconstruction after the Civil War and um, emancipation uh, led to about 10 years of prosperity and liberty for African-Americans. Around 1877, all of that sort of thrown away because white terrorism rises and pretty much curtailed all the progress made for African-Americans. And so in 1890, um, the Mississippi State Legislature passes the Mississippi State Constitution, which basically takes away all civil rights for Black people and institutes what we call Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. This context that Black religion is trying to wrestle with, where does it go from here? People like Morris say that the way forward is to be respectable to make our religion look like upper-class white religion. What Jones and Mason are saying is, no, you don't, as you said earlier, throw the baby out with the bathwater, that we can be proudly black, proudly biblical, and, um, and embrace our, our Africanness, embrace our blackness while also embracing the gospel. And those tensions we see going on in the 1890s are with us today. So for instance, you may have a seminarian in his 20s, who goes to a predominantly white reformed seminary who says everything the black church taught me was wrong and bad and evil. And I'm going to become not just reformed, but upper class white in mm -hmm. my presentation and demeanor. And, and then likewise, you've got, you know, members of the Church of God in Christ, for instance, say, you know, ain't no Holy Ghost in that. I'm a I'm a praise God like I've lost my mind. <laughs> a lot of the, so a lot of the present day problems and, and, and controversies are going as far back as, as a couple of hundred years ago. <laughs> so what I'm basically arguing in the dissertation is, as you said earlier, it's not either or, it's both and. Let, let's take the best of Morris, the best of the National Baptist Convention, the best of Jones and the Church of Christ Holiness, the best of Mason and the Church of God in Christ, and imagine what that looks like for millennials wrestling with similar issues that we can have the learning and the burning, uh, we can have the education and the ecstasy, we can have you know tongues and talents. I mean, all of this needs, because really that's where I think we're headed in a lot of our churches. You think about the growth of Christianity around the world, mm -hmm. in Africa and Latin America, it's, it's a very, you know, it's very different than what we see a lot of times in the States. And so um, my hope is to offer a different paradigm that helps us get out of the either or uh, conflicts we see so much of in many of our churches today. Mm -hmm. How was your interaction with um, what you articulated and the millennials at, at Alcorn? What do you see? Um, I know you shared some difficulties in how they relate to Christianity. What are the biggest um, obstacles you think that we have to overcome as Christians in engaging with Black millennials? 
Yeah, uh, great question. Um, I would say that, you know, this is going to be anecdotal, but since being at Alcorn, um, I went there in 2013, all of the young people who are involved in the campus ministry kind of share the same things. One, they actually, contrary to what people think, want accountability. They, mm. want, they want someone that they can look up to, um, somebody who, um, um, someone they can look up to, someone they, they can believe in. Um, they also are persons who want, um, they want to have an experience of, of the divine. So a lot of them, regardless of denomination, are basically coming out of, um, you know, charismatic renewal. They may be Baptist or Methodist, but, you know, they're much more charismatic. But one of the things that I've noticed is a problem is trying to help them understand that just because you feel called to something uh, doesn't mean that God has to do it um, in the way you think God, you know, um, should do it. So, for instance, you may have someone who says, I feel called to do I don't know, bring a, a group on campus and they don't understand. Well, you know, before you bring the group on campus, you've got to reach out to them and figure out whether or not they can actually come. And do you have the money to afford them? And mm-hmm. so a lot of times, like, well, God's going to do it. God's going to bless. Like, mm, yeah, but you still may have to, you know, pay $1,500 to get your favorite gospel artist on our campus. And mm-hmm. so helping them, you know, understand that, um, Yes, we got to have radical faith. We got to believe in God, but we also there's some other things we got to do. Practicality. And, um, and so a lot of times they're kind of led by, you know, emotion, mm-hmm. um, but but not necessarily always led by by some you know strategic thinking. And so I tend to kind of be the the old millennial on campus um, that tries to tell them, all right, yes, I believe in you. I believe in what God's doing in your life, but um, let's. You know, let's make sure we are doing all we need to do to be excellent in in um, in our ministry on campus. And I apologize. I think something happened with my my camera here. Yeah, it's it's okay. Sometimes it the um it gets weak. I've it's done that for me several times, so I understand. <laughs> uh, Google Hangout is not always the best. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's definitely um, helpful in our engagement with um, millennials because, you know, that first point that millennials want accountability is something that um, we don't really think they do. Uh, and so for you to bring out that point, I think that was so helpful um, that they want accountability. They want a spiritual encounter. Uh, they might not. They might just not want it the way they've seen their parents have it. Right. And, um, and so, especially if they're seeing hypocrisy um, and their mom and dads are one way at church and a different way at home, that's that's why they reject it. Um, uh, I think, you know, I've seen on your Facebooks uh, that you're a fan like me of Greenleaf. Uh, <laughs> yes. And My so favorite I think, show. It is, after watching Greenleaf, I don't want to see Scandal. I don't want to see any other show. <laughs> <laughs> Oprah does a great job. And I I mean, it doesn't show the church in the best light, but I think for a lot of millennials, they can relate to that experience because they've seen such um, hypocrisy and um, the duplicitous nature that that we as Christians sometimes struggle with um, because we are not perfect. Um, But instead of 
confessing our our sins, uh, we kind of mask it sometimes. So I would say hypocrisy isn't the absence of sin, it's the absence of honesty. And so if we're honest about what we struggle with, millennials will connect with us. They're not looking for us to be perfect, but they're looking for us to be transparent. So um, I think uh, that's one of the things that the this, this show kind of highlights for me. Um, what, what are your thoughts on it? I think, I think that's a great assessment of it. Um, there is a, a need for truth telling. And, and so, for instance, when I first watched the, I think the first episode, uh, I had some friends in ministry in the Memphis area who lambasted the show saying it was going to give a, a horrible, um, horrible um, impression uh, to others about the church. And I, for me, I guess I looked at it more in terms of this is a kind of prophetic challenge to the church because we know, you know, those realities that are uh, spoken of and written about in the show are, are very real in a number of our churches, not all of them, but, but clearly a number of them. For instance, um, just Sunday, I met a freshman at Alcorn who came to me and said, I know you're the director of religious life and um, I want to get involved in ministry, but I don't really belong to any particular denomination. So mm-hmm. when you know the belong to a particular denomination, she says, okay, well, great, because I was a member of a church. There was a big scandal that happened and my family left the church. We've not been to church in the last two or so years. Wow. So, I mean, in, in that random exchange, I, you know, scandals happen and they impact real people. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the critiques I think I would have of, of Greenleaf um, is, is sort of a twofold critique. One, every time they've had the preaching on there, it's kind of whack. So like, whoever's <laughs> writing those sermons is like, this is a mega, a black mega church in Memphis, and this is the best you can do for the preaching. Um, but the other thing is, I think they have created too much of a very light and fluffy theology. So you think about grace um, and faith, especially faith with, you know, you know, the kind of, um, I, I don't want to say this in a, in a derogatory way, but the kind of Joel Osteen kind of preaching. And my only concern is when people react to the scandalous church that they end up going so far to the left to where there's sort of Christianity without a lot of conviction. And so I think there needs to be a middle of the road there where we critique and challenge the, the scandalous, but also understand that there's a little more to the faith than just Jesus loves you, high five your, your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's beautifully written. The characters are well-developed. Uh, the cinematography and videography, all, all of that is just beautiful to watch. And I, I'm really glad they're going to be on for a second season. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where the storyline is going to go now that Max in jail and maybe maybe committing suicide or something like that. Uh, uh, but but I look forward to its uh, continued success. Yeah, um, I think there's some deep uh, theological questions we could pull from that when he asked about hell. Yes. Um, yeah. The daughter asking about um, the uh, Levite and the concubine. Mm-hmm. Um, just so many different things can be pulled that uh, I think gives a, a lot of uh, Black pastors some good uh, illustrations to pull from. Uh, but, no, but that also raises a great point about um, the fact that, I mean, now, though the sermons kind of suck, the, the whoever, is, whoever is putting the questions in the mouths of the characters about biblical exegesis, about these, these, you know, like 
who generally hears about the raping of the concubine, right? But, but those are the kinds of what some uh, scholars call texts of terror that mm-hmm. we often overlook because they're a little too, they're a little too, you know, rated R for the church. But those are mm-hmm. the kinds of questions that young people and old people alike are asking. And so we better be equipped to, to deal with those kinds of questions, not only in terms of their placement in the Bible, but when those realities happen in people's lives. So when people, yeah. people are raped or there's mental illness or any kind of thing, we've got to do a better job of addressing those. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything else you want to leave with our, our viewers? Um, well, let me first of all say, I, I want to thank you for allowing me to be on. And I've got great respect for the work you're doing, the way that you are in this millennial world, uh, bringing this, conversation uh, through social media and other platforms. Uh, and I think that's sort of one of the things that, that has to happen. You know, all millennials are not going to get all their information on the internet, but that's a big place where a lot of us land. And so um, this demonstrates the kind of ministry context we're in, that we've got to use Facebook and um, Google Hangout and Twitter to reach a population. Uh, because what I've noticed you and others doing is trying to think about, you know, African-American apologetics. Uh, One of the biggest issues that's going to come up with increasing, increasing fervor is going to be as African-American Christians come into contact with other um, non-Christian religions, uh, namely, and I'm talking more so not just the nation of Islam, but the new nation of Islam, black Hebrew Israelites, um, comedic science, these various groups that are that are in, in many ways not only attacking Christianity, but saying that if you want to truly embrace your blackness, you got to go beyond Christianity, beyond Islam, and go back to Egypt. Mm-hmm. We got to be equipped for that. And I think you know what Jude Three is doing, and other groups like you are doing, is really helping equip this generation with the particular apologetic concerns uh, that we're going to have. That may not look like you know our parents. Uh, uh, questions, but they are very real questions we got to deal with. And so this platform is is a great addition to that conversation. Awesome. That's encouraging. Thank you so much. Um, For for those who want to get in contact with you, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, so I'm on uh, Twitter at Rev Rhodes, R-E-V-R-H-O-D-E-S. I'm also on Facebook, CJ Rhodes, M-Div, M-D-I-V. I'm also on Instagram at RevRoads82. I also have a, a website, cjroads.org. So any of those ways, I'm easily accessible on any of those platforms. Awesome. And last question for those who are like, I want to see uh, what I want to uh, check out some of the things that um, Reverend Rose was talking about as far as black church history. What resources would you recommend to them? Ah, that's great. I've been reading a number of books. Um, I would I would love to maybe in some format kind of type them all up and, and get it to people. Um, but I think if someone really wants to get uh, a good feel of of certain things, um, there is there there are a number of books. One of them is African American Religious History by Milton Cernet and the Black Church in the African American Experience by Lincoln and Mamiya, M-A-M-I-Y-A. Those may be like two really cool books to start with. Um, For our more kind of reformed um, 
um, brothers and sisters, Reviving the Black Church by Thabiti Anyobwile. That's probably a name a lot of people would, would recall. Um, those are some, you know, really good books about kind of history, uh, diverse history, because the black church uh, is actually much more diverse than what people think it is. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Anyobwile's book talks about some of the present day concerns that we've lifted up in terms of Greenleaf and tries to um, provide an anecdote uh, for those issues. So that would be a starting point, but I would love to maybe write up something and then, you know, get it to you so you can get to your, to your audience. Oh, that'd be awesome. I could um, definitely attach that to um, this episode um, for, as a resource for those who want to um, do more in-depth study. Sure. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. So thank you, CJ. Thank, I mean, thank you, Reverend Rose. I'm sorry. That's fine. You call me CJ. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one. You too. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it